This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Extra defence surveillance aircraft and ships have been deployed to Australia's north to assist with border protection efforts. The move comes amid warnings from the Coalition that federal government changes to temporary protection visas could see a resumption in people smuggling activities. Here's Defence Correspondent Andrew Green. The Commander of Operation Sovereign Borders goes online to deliver a blunt message. The Australian government's decision to resolve legacy temporary visa caseloads does not change how Australia protects its borders. In a video translated into several regional languages, Rear Admiral Justin Jones tells those contemplating a boat journey to Australia to think again. Let me be clear. Anyone who attempts an unauthorised boat voyage to Australia will be turned back to their country of departure, returned to their home country or transferred to a regional processing country. The recording was made as the government this week confirmed around 19,000 refugees who arrived in Australia before Operation Sovereign Borders would be eligible to stay permanently. Last night, during a Senate estimates hearing, Defence was quizzed about Operation Resolute, the military's contribution to border protection efforts. Liberal Senator David Van asked the Vice Chief of Defence, Vice Admiral David Johnston, about the Navy's current involvement. Has the RAND been ordered to redirect resources from regional exercises to support Operation Resolute following the government's changes to visa settings? The Defence Force generally, Senator, surges as is required to support operational sovereign borders. So that is available to the government to employ the ADF in that nature and uh, we are currently providing surge support. Under subsequent questioning from Coalition frontbencher Simon Birmingham, the Vice Chief gave some more limited information. Can I get a little more detail on uh, on what that surge support uh, entails? I won't specify the nature of the surge because it is responding to the circumstance that the Commander of Sovereign Borders has asked us for, but it is of the nature of additional aircraft surveillance, additional ships that are patrolling in our northern waters. Vice Admiral Johnston confirmed the surge was requested in the last few weeks, but wouldn't specify why. Did uh, the Commander of Operation Sovereign Borders indicate whether there was a reason for the increased risk profile? Senator, I'd suggest again those are issues better put to Home Affairs for the circumstances that are requiring the surge. At the last election, Labor promised to abolish temporary protection visas, but they will remain on the statute books. Andrew Green reporting. The Japanese island of Ishigaki is about 2,000 kilometres from the capital Tokyo, but less than 300 kilometres from Taiwan. It's also home to the country's newest military base, which begins operations in just a few weeks. Japan's undergoing a massive military shift, along with huge, a huge boost in defence funding as it tries to counter a more powerful China. But for the island's inhabitants, there's deep division. North Asia correspondent James Oten travelled to the subtropical island of Ishigaki. On the side of a highway, a dozen elderly women have gathered to protest. 
They're chanting anti-war slogans in the local Okinawan dialect. Just a few hundred metres up the road is an almost finished military base. It's set to host around 600 soldiers and missile launchers. 85-year-old Setsuko Yamazato is the leader of the protest group, the so-called Society of Grannies to Protect Life and Livelihood. I don't think we will be safe to have military base. If you have a base, that'll be the first object that enemies would aim to spot. For Setsuko, it's personal. In the dying months of the Second World War, the Japanese Imperial Army feared an American invasion of Ishigaki was imminent. Setsuko and her family were forced deep into the jungle as the army thought the island's residents might give up information to the enemy. The conditions were brutal. Setsuko lost her six-month-old baby sister to starvation and her mother to malaria. It's an experience that's made her a lifelong pacifist. Whoever creates or cooks up the war are, are the ones that I really hate. The Japanese government has outlined a five-year plan to boost military spending by almost 60%. High on the shopping list are missiles that can strike further than ever before, including, for the first time, the Chinese mainland. We're not actually thinking about fighting such a war. That's Professor Yoko Awama from the Tokyo-based National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies. We're thinking about deterrence, meaning that telling the Chinese that we do have these capabilities, if you do things that we do not want you to do, um, this is the cost you might have to pay. Ishigaki councillor Hitoshi Nakama has had first-hand experience dealing with a more assertive China. For decades, he's been fishing near a set of disputed islands, known as the Senkaku in Japan and Diaoyu in China. He films tense confrontations between Japanese and Chinese Coast Guard vessels. In this video, he says the Chinese Coast Guard is entering Japan's territorial waters with impunity and without hesitation. I believe that the people of Japan should firmly protect their territory and their waters. Polls show there is broad support to beef up Japan's military. But the idea of new taxes to pay for the change is deeply unpopular. While the exact details are still to be ironed out, Ishigaki's new military base is a certainty. North Asia correspondent James Oten. Households across the country are bracing for more financial pain as the Reserve Bank Governor warns Australians that more interest rate hikes are ahead. But it's already having a significant flow-on effect, with millions of small businesses starting to feel the impact of tightening purse strings. Many of them are also worried about what rate the rate hike means for their business loans. Catherine Gregory's been speaking with business owners. In Sydney's southeast, near the airport, small businesses are already feeling the heat from rising interest rates, like John Callis, who owns A&S Select Meats in Mascot. People are a lot more cautious on how they are spending and the interest rates definitely does up, it comes up in conversation. Are you worried about the next interest rate rises that are to come? Definitely worried and definitely worried for a lot of people that have their interest rates coming out of uh, maturity. You know, they were told one thing uh, and now they've been bombarded with uh, huge hikes. Despite political and public pushback, the Reserve Bank is standing by its decision to have made nine consecutive interest rate hikes since May last year. Now at 3.35%, it's added hundreds if not thousands of dollars to people's monthly mortgage repayments. 
high mortgage costs are also being passed down from landlords to renters. Henry Perez, who owns a local hairdressing salon, says he's really noticed a slowdown after each monthly rate rise, particularly the last one. And that's just because I think people feel like getting a haircut, it is valuable, but it can wait a week or two. And do you have any loans yourself that are affected? Business. And are you noticing that that is getting a bit harder to pay? It is because it's all the interest that I'm paying. And they're expecting more rises to come. Does that worry you? It does. Yes, it does 100% because obviously people tend to not want to spend and scared to spend. And then obviously having a business loan. RBA Governor Philip Lowe told Senate estimates yesterday that more interest rate hikes are very likely. That has Alan Gilvey, who owns a gym franchise in Newcastle, worried. We are concerned because we are a discretionary spend and it's not just home owners, it's also home renters. And as a discretionary spend, people would much rather put food on the table than go to the movies or have a membership. Matthew Addison is the chair of the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia. A lot of small businesses their finance is a mixture of their private home that they've mortgaged, but part of that mortgage funds their business. So the increased rate rises that are now hitting their home is also hitting their cost of doing business. Are they also seeing at the same time a decline in people's discretionary spending because of the interest rates? The decline in discretionary spending is just starting to creep through in what we're seeing in the data. Retail trade is doing it tougher. Even uh, hospitality is doing it that little bit tougher. So, yep, discretionary spending is being reduced, but it is just coming through now. He says this is contributing to other challenges like rising costs of labour and energy. And in the end, small businesses won't have any choice but to start raising their prices. Catherine Gregory there. Australia experienced one of its worst bushfire events in living memory 40 years ago. The Ash Wednesday fires burnt through hundreds of thousands of hectares of land across South Australia and Victoria. 75 people died. In the decades since, there have been improvements to firefighting and infrastructure, but Victoria's former Chief Fire Officer warns Australia remains vulnerable to another Ash Wednesday scale disaster. Leanne Wong prepared this report. It was February 1983 and southern Australia was engulfed by fire. Tinder-dry forests up in flames, fanned by almost 40-degree temperatures and unpredictable winds. This footage shows a house collapsing as it's consumed by flames. 75 people were killed on Ash Wednesday, 28 in South Australia and 47 in Victoria. We haven't got close to the township itself as yet, but if anybody's trapped in there, God help them. In Macedon, northwest of Melbourne, Alison Milne was driving into a firestorm. It's a roar. It's a roar like a thousand trains. She still carries the memories of that day. It was terrifying. There was smoke. The engine was chugging because of the debris. The fires began in South Australia before sweeping through to Victoria. Within hours, more than 180 fires had broken out. It was a day out of hell. It really was. Southeast of Adelaide, Jeff Robinson almost died, sheltering under a bridge with fellow firefighters. It was just a day that you never forget, but you wish it never happened. 
The devastation became a catalyst for changing the way Victoria and South Australia fought fires, bringing about improvements to equipment, communications and infrastructure. Ewan Waller is Victoria's former chief fire officer. The key one has, has been uh, power lines. Power lines cause most of the fires on, on Ash Wednesday. Um, and again on Black Saturday, we're getting on top of that. You know, there's been more work done and uh, undergrounding more power lines and that's been a big one. In other words, trying to stop the number of actual unplanned fires you have on a bad day. But he says more needs to be done to prevent future disasters. We're still very, very vulnerable to you know, these fires which um, are, are driven largely, I believe, by climate change with hotter and drier summers, strong winds and also unstable atmospheres. So that all adds up to you know, a, a very difficult uh, situation to manage. Peak Wurrung elder Uncle Rob Lowe grew up on the Framlingham Mission near Warrnambool. He saw the fires firsthand and has advocated for years for more cultural burns, a debate that remains controversial. You know, you've got so many people telling you you shouldn't be burning. Um, but our ancestors knew when to burn and they passed that on to us when, we, when they were teaching us how to burn. Well, we can control our own burnings and control our own destiny, so to speak. Um, yeah, non-Indigenous people might jump on board. 40 years on, the scars from Ash Wednesday remain. It, it's, it's burnt into my memory. Bushfire survivor Alison Milne ending Leanne Wong's report. In a surprise announcement, Nicola Sturgeon stepping down as Scotland's First Minister after more than eight years leading the Scottish Government. So why now? Ms Sturgeon says in her head and her heart she knows it's time to step down. The MP's been the driving force behind Scotland's independence movement. Some analysts claim that will be at risk under a new leader. Michelle Rimmer reports from London. Good morning, everyone. Dressed in her trademark red suit and with a familiar steely expression, Scotland's longest-serving First Minister called time on her leadership. Since my very first moments in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. And when that time came, to have the courage to do so, even if to many across the country and in my party, it might feel too soon. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. The announcement came as a surprise to many, including members of Sturgeon's own party. She's been a dominant figure in Scottish politics for the last eight years, leading the Scottish National Party to repeated election victories. But Ms Sturgeon says she's been wrestling with the decision to step down for some time. Giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is now in danger of becoming too long. Nicola Sturgeon says she was motivated to join politics by Britain's first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, whose policies she disagreed with so intensely she felt compelled to campaign against them. She was elected to Parliament in 1999 and became Scotland's first female leader in 2014. The passionate and at times divisive Scot rarely saw eye to eye with those at Westminster. She worked alongside five different British Prime 
Prime Ministers during her time in office. Current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak paid tribute to her service. Nicola and I didn't agree on everything, but in the short time that we did work together, I was pleased that we were able to announce two free ports in Scotland. That's joint working between the UK government and the Scottish government. And I look forward to working with whoever the new First Minister is to continue working constructively to deliver for the people of Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon's historic career will likely be remembered for her passionate and so far unsuccessful fight for Scottish independence. British polling analyst John Curtich believes the independence movement is at risk as a new leader takes the reins. There is no obvious successor. There is no obvious person who has the charisma of Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond who uh, might be able to do the job and to push support for independence up. Um, but that's the task that will face them. Nicola Sturgeon will stay on as leader until a successor is chosen. This is Michelle Rimmer in London reporting for AM. Thailand's newly liberalised laws on marijuana use may well boost tourism and the livelihoods of farmers, but it seems it's now also boosting the drug's importation beyond Thailand's borders, including to Bali. In the months since Thailand took marijuana off its narcotics list and legalised its use, there's been a steady flow of tourists flying from Bangkok to Bali with a drug that was legal when they bought it, but could bring them a hefty jail term in Indonesia. Our correspondent in Jakarta, Ann Barker, reports. Thailand's relaxed new drug laws have seen weed shops pop up across Bangkok and key tourist areas, selling everything from buds, flowers and plants to cannabis oil and edibles for use in foods like cookies or brownies. But with marijuana now legal and seemingly everywhere, albeit with lower levels of its addictive chemicals, the increased availability of the drug is having an impact outside Thailand. Authorities in Bali are seeing a rise in the number of tourists arriving with marijuana in their bags that they'd either forgotten about or naively thought because they'd bought it legally they could bring it to Bali. Sniffer dogs at Denpasar Airport are working overtime. The marijuana coming in from Thailand is predominantly in the form of dried leaves and flowers. The rest are derivatives like liquid for vaping, says a Bali customs official, Boo Pramudito. We remind foreigners entering Indonesia to be aware of the laws. Even if it's for medical use, marijuana won't be tolerated. In the past two months alone, officials say 15 foreigners have been arrested in Bali and reported to legal authorities with marijuana bought in Thailand. Those caught have come mainly from Russia, Britain, the US, China and Brazil. But Thailand's new law could also cause headaches for Singaporeans because of a harsh extraterritorial law that bans drug use even outside Singapore with a possible jail term if offenders have drugs in their urine. Last year, two of Singapore's top swimmers were found to have used marijuana during competition overseas but avoided charges back home after urine tests proved negative. Ramesh Tiwari, a criminal lawyer in Singapore, says random urine tests like those done on the two swimmers mean Singaporeans have to be more careful than in other countries if they use marijuana even legally in Thailand. There's also this issue of passive inhalation. So you could be in a cup, for instance, or in an enclosed area where the vast majority of people are smoking. 
and you can passively get it into your system. Others question whether the Thai laws will last in their current form. With elections due there as early as May, some Thai opposition politicians are strongly against legalised cannabis. This is Anne Barker in Jakarta reporting for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Cyber Elaine. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. The head of the Reserve Bank has fronted a Senate inquiry saying raising interest rates is the best way to fight inflation. Today, business and economics reporter Gareth Hutchins on why there could actually be an ingenious alternative. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.